Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Panel Presents with Katie Jones, John Knowles, Nora Louise Saran, Scott Carter Cooper. Hello there, and welcome to our September instalment of The Panel Presents with me, Rachel Feeney Williams. If you've listened before, welcome back. But if you are new to the show, then allow me to let you know what you're in for. It involves me and four wonderful panellists discussing important issues relating to the world of theatre. And who are these panellists? Well, let's meet them, shall we? My first panellist hails from the windy city of Chicago and comes with a mammoth list of titles, including actor, singer, director and producer. For the past seven years, his focus has been writing and it's certainly paid off with having plays selected for various theatre programmes, productions and reading series. Productions of his work span around the globe from Ireland to India and Japan to Germany. But on top of all of this, he also holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree as well as a Master's in Writing. Taking a breath, it's a thrill to have him here. Welcome, Scott Carter Cooper. Thank you. Happy to be here. My second playwright is a first-generation Norwegian-American playwright and a teacher of literature, theatre arts and music. She's an amazing writer of plays for both children and adults with a focus on ensemble work and plenty of roles for females. In addition, she has a collection of murder mystery dinner parties and plays at hostparty.com. And if that wasn't enough, she has numerous pieces in print and now she makes her debut with theatrical shenanigans. Welcome, Nora Louise Saran. Hi, nice to be here. My third panellist hails from my side of the pond in the great city of Liverpool, and it is said he has combined the three roles of comedian, storyteller and scallywag into his creations. His writing career has mostly been focused on theatre, but he's had successes in film, with two scripts being optioned by film production companies. His most recent play, however, is a fascinating piece and described in his own words as a new play with music aimed at young adults confronting climate change by nothing short of a full revolution. Colour me intrigued. I'm very much interested to have him here. Welcome, John Knowles. Hi. (laughs) And last, but by no means least, we have a panellist returning to theatrical shenanigans. Way back in season one, she and I got to have a wonderful conversation about the topical play Stalk Patrol, written by Deborah Cole, but that is the very least of her achievements. Hailing from Devon, not too far from where I am, she plays a leading role in her local group as director, producer, playwright and performer, as well as the orchestrator of youth events. She's also a prominent role in a Sing and Smile programme, as well as completing numerous challenges in the name of charity. I have had the pleasure of knowing and working with her for several years, and I'm thrilled to have her back. Welcome, Katie Jones. Good to be here. <clears throat> okay, so as always, we start with our first group question. In your experience, what is the best single skill that being involved in theatre has brought you? And we will start with Scott. I would say the the single most valuable skill that I have. Uh, attained in theater is flexibility and adaptability, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Particularly tested in the pandemic, the ability to kind of roll with the punches and make the best of a situation uh, really does stem from my background in theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nora? Working with others. And um, I I think of a a moment, I remember I used to run tech in my high school in, in France and 
being able to work with different directors and seeing what kind of needs they had and the kind of personalities they had was, it, it, I, we always just used to stand back and marvel at how different one had to be with these different directors. And I think the, the kids anyway walked off learning that and I certainly learned that. Uh, John? Uh, I think for me, tenacity and bounce, I think. <laughs> I think the ability to, because, you know, rejection is part of our the job as a writer. You get rejected quite a lot. And mm -hmm. I think also, you know, funding bids get rejected all the time. So you have to have a lot of tenacity to keep on going, keep on saying, well, why am I doing this? So, yeah, tenacity and bounce. Mm. And finally, Katie. Oh, brilliant, brilliant question. Brilliant answers, actually. I... I, I... Um, relate to all of those um, and I was thinking about it and I, I actually ran it past my husband and said what would you say and he said I think you've really improved your patience um, <laughs> it, and it has to do with flexibility and adaptability but it's to have the patience to go with the energy that you're working with and the energies that you're being confronted with mm -hmm. um, and, and make that work and to, and to bring that into your skill set and to bring that into your tool Kit. So I think for me, it has been a huge amount of patience. <laughs> okay, so we move into the main part of our program and we start with Nora. In a world where there has been a great amount of fear in offending people, do you think the world of theatre has become a victim of censorship? I'm going to tread very carefully here. I am. Um, Ironically. I, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, and I've given this some thought, so I'm, I'm hoping I can... Yeah, I can say things without offending everyone. Uh, I'm going to try. Um, yeah, I, I'm coming from a place the last 20 years where, you know, our, you know, movies that are rated R in the States are on the television in the middle of the day in France, you know. So I'm, I, when I get back here, I realize that I'm I, I'm constantly getting it wrong. I, I was thinking that, to be honest, theater and the arts in general have always been a victim of censorship. Many of the works that we consider some of the greatest, uh, it, unfortunately, it's not something new. There's nothing like having a, a book or a play or any artwork to um, band to, to pique the public's interest, you know, mm -hmm. and it's that old apple in the garden of Eden thing. You know, there will always be someone wanting to um, contain truth and there will be someone wishing to release it. So no matter how well we think something's written, no matter how well we think we're speaking about something or whatever, it's in the subjective nature of art that there will always be someone who will take offense. It seems to me that a lot of the censorship is coming from ourselves, from theater, from creatives, playwrights anyway. Um, we're putting our own censorship in place. Um, as playwrights, we're, um, you know, we're adding trigger warnings. I've, I've been learning that just this last year, noticing how many playwrights add trigger warnings to things in the same way that we you know, we warn an audience when they're walking into a public space about flashing lights. It's self-censorship, you know. Um, what I've noticed over the years in France anyway is the world has definitely become more aware of unnecessary, unnecessarily offending people. And, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, the cruel is not funny. And I think young people in general these days, what I've noticed over 25 years of teaching is that um, they're kinder and gentler than just my impression than my generation. And I think we've educated uh, people this way, you know? I think you're right. Yeah. I think part of it is the uh, um, censorship from the powers that be, but a big chunk of it is looking at our society and thinking, oh, I can't find this funny anymore. And you kind of think, well, why? 
this, the, especially with, um, I'm finding a lot with um, comedians now, people are like, oh, you can't find this funny. Why? He's a comedian by definition. It's meant to, it's meant to be funny. But whether, yeah, but you, I, whether you air yeah. quotes can laugh or should laugh yeah. at it is yeah. another question altogether. But I think in 2023, we have, you know, we used to have Benny Hill. We <laughs> have Philomena Conk now, you know, and I think we can make fun of ourselves, but we need to maybe, I, yeah, it is the self-restraint to how do we mock others, but there's, I just think we have to be clever about it. Like Philomena mm. Conk, she's yeah. clever about it. You know, she's right. mocking a whole hell of a lot of things, but mm. she's not really tearing anyone in particular down. And I, mm. I think that's how things have changed, really. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 70s in England. So, I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of sexist, racist, misogynistic comedians and TV programmes and stuff was yeah. on the mainstream all the time. And I think you're right. I think the big difference is I think you can still, you can still take things really t- quite close to the edge as long as it's not cruelty for cruelty's sake. And I think mm. the 70s, there was a lot of, a lot of cheap cruelty, basically, um, in, in comedy. And, and I, think that's, I think I'd agree with you with that, Nora, that basically, as long as you're not being intentionally cruel, then there's kind of, it's up to you where your limits go, basically, I think. Yeah. I found myself writing a monologue the other day for um, a group of kids, um, and it was a different kind of censorship. And this is why this question really interested me, because it had stemmed from one of the, um, group saying can we still use this text because this happens and this happens and this happens and my answer was yeah absolutely you can because you can't airbrush history how do we know where we've got to mm-hmm. if we don't know where we came from and um so 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 you know you get an awful lot of people these days saying I won't represent this I won't do this in pantomime I won't do this and you have to it's it's such a thin line because there are some things that are not remotely offensive and how far do you take it you could never have pantomime anymore I actually feel very strongly that we absolutely shouldn't censor it I think it's it it goes back to what you were saying um John about um you shouldn't go there and it's like there's somewhere along the lines some body or some individual has kind of started a list of things we're not supposed to or not allowed to talk about anymore and you just think that thing well who created this list there is there's not you know the i don't i really think the governments of the world have better things to do <laughs> than to create lists of things that people should be offended by and i think nora's right i think part of it is self-censorship where you see people getting angry on social media about certain things being written or talked about and then you suddenly think oh well I, I i can't write about this or i can't talk about this even if it's something you feel passionate about because you've seen the aftermath against other people i i'm afraid i'm going to be the cheese that stands alone a little bit here i sort of <laughs> think it's our responsibility as an artist to be offensive to someone mm. right um, I think I think the issue isn't necessarily am I being offensive, but am I being offensive with intention? Yeah. Right. Do I do I realize as an artist, as opposed to as a person, um, am I am I being provocative in some way? That I feel like that in some level is my responsibility, and 
I feel like the self-censorship that I sometimes feel comes from, as Rachel pointed out, the online outrage. And I think that a lot of self-censorship isn't necessarily born from a sudden realization that this is wrong or that I am being offensive unintentionally or I'm causing pain. I think a lot of the self-censorship, at least that I feel, just simply comes from what we now have as a culture of outrage, right? Mm -hmm. The people who are outraged and offended online, in my opinion, oftentimes are almost professionally outraged because it gets them attention. I think that would be an amazing title to have on a business card, though. Your, na your name and then just constantly outraged. <laughs> I feel like it's something people should start putting in pro in profiles. Like your, yeah. your, your name, something interesting about you, and then just, I am constantly outraged. And you, and you can see it in my life, you're going, yeah, you don't really mean that. You, just, you, you know your ratings are just going to go up next week because you've been outraged about this thing. Yeah. But I, I had a conversation with a, a fellow playwright, and he was he was part way through writing something and he said i'm not sure whether i should continue with this and i said why he said well it's probably not gonna ever get produced because it might offend people and i was like well i mean a you don't you don't write to be produced you write because you want to write that's what i've always been told and what i've always believed and secondly what's the worst thing that could genuinely happen to you if it is produced and people are offended because i think that's the big thing people there's this whole kind of cancel culture thing point, that's point reared its and, ugly head <laughs> pointy hats and torches that's what we're all scared yeah. of <laughs> come after you <laughs> but it goes it goes back to what you were you were saying earlier um john about intent um and i think yeah. if if the per if a person goes on to a stage and performs a character or a caricature that is what it is it is a character it is not a a point of hatred towards that particular race or gender or whatever it is a character and i think that's what a lot of uh people who do get instantly outraged have struggle with it's like that actor hasn't come out of their dressing room and gone i'm really going to offend these people today they've they've learned this character they've they've they have they are performing that is what they are you know either paid for or that is what their passion is they don't and i think that's the difference if you go out there and just start screaming racial slurs at people in the street that is intentionally being offensive whereas if it's a character that's where the line starts to come into play in my mind anyway okay uh nora do you have a final thought and then we'll move on i really hope that the french can maintain their ability to shock when we need to shock not just to shock for shock's sake as we've mm -hmm. hopefully all agree but um because create that's what we need the world needs that from time to time it needs a good shake up Theater doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's reflecting the world we're in. And at the moment, it's so in the States anywhere, in, anyway, and France is becoming that way, and, and UK too. But, um, you know, there's this exaggerated fear of drag queens on one side and then versus the fear of guns on the other, and it's going to impact theater. It, it, it'll, of course, impact theater. Scott, following the pandemic and lockdown, how do you believe the world of theater has changed in both a positive and a negative way? I do think that the, the theater is going through change, um, in a lot of cases, necessary change. And I think that the pandemic and the lockdown has accelerated a lot of the change that was already in place when the pandemic hit. The lockdown really 
really encouraged us to look at ways to improve um, accessibility. And I mean, this podcast is an excellent example of that. And I do think that Zoom in particular, but other online media have given us a new tool in which to develop theater, Mm -hmm. however we choose to do that. I also think that a positive of the pandemic has been that it has it has given us an opportunity, especially early on, to pause and consider as a as a theatrical community and industry what it is we are doing and what we are responsible for doing. Mm. And it has given us an opportunity as individual artists to determine what it is I want to do with the remaining time I have on the planet as an artist, Mm. right? What is my responsibility to the theatrical community? Um, And I think those are all positive things. Uh, If I, if I had to go to the negative, I think I'll, I'll kind of almost refer back to the previous conversation. When I say these questions, you know, the questions of who am I and what am I doing are posed, but I don't think that they're being answered. I think the responses to these questions by and large are, I can tell you what you are doing wrong, and I can tell you what they need to do to make theater better. And what's usually implied in that is what they can make theater better for me, Mm -hmm. right? I fully expected the first season back um, in 2021 to be very conservative in what was presented because the focus was to get, forgive me, butts in seats and to sell tickets. And I expected to see a pretty conservative slate of of theater. I was frankly shocked at how conservative it was. So I, I think the sort of what I'm seeing as the conservative approach to um, artistic expression, at least on the organizational level, mm. is sort of a negative. Yeah, it, it it's become, there is a lot more uh, gatekeeping now to new playwrights than there used to be, um, from what I've seen. Um, I, I'm, I'm loving uh, what you were saying, Scott, and um. I, I suppose one of the things that um, lockdown did for everybody was create an enormous amount of introspection. And um, just just listening to the you know uh, playwrights telling their own stories, I think I think that probably is very symptomatic of the last few years because um, that's where they've been. They, they, there has been all this time for introspection. Yeah, I think you mentioned, um, and you mentioned one of the byproducts of of this pandemic has been perhaps the increase in gatekeeping. But it's just to follow on what you both are saying that, well, Katie, what you just said, introspection, and then a lot of people sitting down and writing, sending things out. And so there's this, you know, this, this cycle of all this, all the all the um, all these opportunities filling up so very quickly, because there are so many people writing. And as you're saying, Katie, it's all introspective and you know, alienated, isolated sort of 
you know, have, but I want to just ask, do we not maybe though think that even pre-pandemic, new, new theatre has always been risky and so it's hard to educate ourselves and that's why like you mentioned new play exchange has been so has been invaluable because it is it is this wonderful source of you can see what's out there what kind of things people are are writing what kind of new stuff is being created and Mm. i'm sort of talking about a few things yeah it's there but i think that whole gate thing introspection it's all connected you know I think as an as an overall for me at least the sense of uh the sense of uh, firstly the sense of community got a lot bigger during the pandemic because people had nothing else to do but to stay at home and try and you know connect with the world in the best way they could and that was how a lot of um the stuff that I ended up doing got started or was the reason for it it also opened our uh, our eyes to the idea of virtual theater um so a lot of people have done have formed kind of play reading groups and, and as you said scott you did play reading experiences online and that's become so much more of a thing now even post the pandemic because it opens doors for people so i think in a way that sense of community and that sense of opportunity was a huge positive to come out of the pandemic I think um, for me personally, the, the, the pandemic was uh, like, because this whole Zoom world uh, was not a natural one for me. So I actually wrote two plays specifically tailored to the Zoom market mm. because uh, if I was going to write something, I thought, well, I'm just going to write a play and put it on. It's pointless. I need to write something which is about the world of Zoom and, and the way people interact on it. And it was a lot of fun doing it. And it was also, for me personally, it was an opportunity to keep the actors who worked with me um, mentally healthy, actually, because yeah. there was a challenge for them. So actually getting together and saying, we're going to do this mad play together online and you're going to have to sort of learn a song and we'll get synthesizers in and and then find out that's not what you do on Zoom because it's not made for doing music at all. So uh, <laughs> it's great because they actually came away and said, well, regardless of whoever sees this in the future, it, it was actually good for us doing two plays online. And I know loads of my friends sort of went out there and did loads of stuff with like Shakespeare, particularly loads of online Shakespeare going on. And I think it was actually, yeah, I think the theatre community itself reacted really well, I think, to support people in the industry um, in terms of creating and, Mm. you know, doing stuff. Difficult, obviously, for the technicians and all those people who, who, you know, really suffered very badly, I think. Mm. Um, But I think coming out of COVID, you are right, there is a kind of, even before COVID, it was difficult getting your plays into a theatre if you didn't have a name and you were a new playwright and it was a play they never heard of before. I mean, selling shows is difficult. Post-COVID, oh, wow, it's, it's so hard because you're right. Everybody's putting on things which you go, really? That again? Okay, I get it. And um, it's sad in a way because I think if, if that carries on, we don't build the audiences. We're, we're stuck with the generation who know those plays and they're quite an old generation now. So we need developing stuff for not necessarily younger people, but more inclusive. You know what I mean? And I think my fear is that post-COVID theatres are being too safe. And I think they've got to challenge themselves a bit more if they're going to survive, basically. I think it also, the, the pandemic also gave people the opportunity to, uh, this is going to sound very um, snobbish, explore their craft in ways they hadn't previously thought of. So, I mean, obviously this is, a prime example of that i 
started a podcast because I thought, you know what, I'm going to start maybe shining a light on other playwrights out there and speaking to other people because that was the one for me that was the big thing that it's to say it's dangerous to say I loved about the pandemic um <laughs> that was one of the things that um was a real positive for me was because I got to experience and become part of this incredible community that because of things like zoom and social media spans the globe and I n- never would have had that if not for the pandemic because you have kind of your your local groups to your town or your city and that's kind of where you resonate because you go and see people face to face and you rehearse shows and stuff whereas when you're in your own in, in your own home you know 24 hours a day with no one else to talk to it's quite nice to make friends with a couple of hundred people all over the world <laughs> uh Scott, final thought, and we will move on. I guess my final thought would be that I mean I've been around I've been around forever, um, but <laughs> the the trend the trend that I see is that at any given moment people sort of take the view that the state of the theater um, at that moment is now the state for eternity. And theater has has always evolved, and it will continue to evolve. Okay, uh, Katie, with the younger generation spending more time socializing only via Instagram and TikTok, how important do you think theater and drama should be in their educational journey? Uh, it's a it's a lovely question. Um, I um. In their educational journey, as in in their um, formal education, um, I think it is very sad that there is a hierarchy in subjects. Whilst I believe English and maths are really important, um, I think that we live in very creative countries. And um, in such creative countries, everybody is different. We celebrate that in every other way, it seems, than education. And therefore, I think um, drama and or music should probably be as compulsory. Um, I think they're really important subjects. Um, Fortunately, um, there are lots of people like ourselves who feel very strongly um, that um, drama is massively important um, in development for everybody. Um, And so there will always be things for um, young people. Um, And I didn't realise quite how passionate I was about it until the pandemic. Um, And until um, I think we were um, running um, an event that we'd run every year previously. And um, we, we managed have one day while we got everybody together and it was kind of between lockdowns and we had a group of um, teenagers in amongst all of that all of whom I'd known for years and years and years and um, I was absolutely shocked and horrified by the state they were in not just in their inability to um, or in their nervousness about um interacting with everybody but even with each other 
they weren't even whispering in corners. They were absolutely desolate and sitting there completely isolated. Um, and um, I thought that was really scary. And it's taken, I think that they're still feeling the effects. And so I've rigorously been running youth projects ever since. Um, and there's a lot of funding around because it's a very recognised thing. But what I think I have seen theatre bring to children for so many years and, you know, as, uh, ever since I started myself, is it's not just the confidence building or even the safe creative space, but in terms of community theatre, you're offering them completely different um, scenarios and um, completely different intergenerational um, life forms to meet, um, you know, completely different new alien um, ways of life and outlooks and um, cultures uh, through all the different people they meet um, and not only that but the matter that the matter that you're using with them for instance um, you know the plays that they're seeing um, the the existing text that you're showing them um, all of the different storytelling you're offering them a completely unique experience in a really interesting and engaging way that they will have with them forever and that they will remember forever um, and so what do I think of TikTok <laughs> and um, those outlets? Well, I was glad to see them being used as much as they were. And I was glad. It's very. It's been very, very, very handy when you're uh, choreographing children, actually, uh, because they all know any number of dances that they learn from TikTok. So that has definitely <laughs> Um, there has definitely been some benefit and it comes back to what Scott was saying about you know our ingenuity of moving things online when we had to because there was nothing else and it won't be ignored but I think theatre for young people is really really important I think um, a look at all different kinds of ways of living all different kinds of cultures there is no more engaging way for them to do it and no safer way to um, communicate on all kinds of different levels. Um, it's a massive broadening of horizons, and I don't think it's anything that um, that, that I, I see very, very little negative about it, and only positive. So I think to take that away from children or to not offer it, I think is criminal. Personally, I've um, I've said this before that um, there are obviously the the rules know no bounds where theatre is, is concerned. So you you go into a, a math class, two plus two is always going to equal four. You go into a drama class, two plus two equals a purple flying chicken. <laughs> oh, you went to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I did. It's um yeah, I I I'm obviously in total agreement that theatre is necessary, and and it's a shame that we live in a culture, especially in England at the moment, where even our culture secretary is so lacking in culture that mm -hmm. they have no real interest in it my local council recently we found out they could have 22 million pounds uh from to draw down from the government uh they could have decided on an art center they decided on a sports center and there was a whole debate happened locally where i basically pointed out that i wouldn't have been where i am if it hadn't been for the everyman youth theater in liverpool which was you know it was a socialist hotbed of of theater i mean i you know alan bleasdale was writing plays and you know we had great great artists come in and, and treat us the kids as if we were actually part of the company mm. in fact 
I think of Emma Riley, one of, one of the youth theatre was actually on the board of the Everman Youth Theatre. And for me, I think that the important thing is theatre should be radical, especially at children's age. You know, there should be people who are out there doing it with that, that have the real passion and that and that can truly benefit rather than just be doing an exercise as another thing that has to be done. It seems to me that the technology and the and the fear we have of it sort of, you know, devouring the life force of our children is reflective of the fact that I think we can, we have come to the point where we confuse education and training, right? Um, and that I think theater and the arts, but theater in particular, and that's probably my own personal bias, mm -hmm. is a particular, a particular value in education. And until until we just we as as a global society begin to recognize that it's more important to educate than it is to train theater will always be a check the box mm. sort of activity <laughs> i think it's also you have to consider not just like the the technical elements of of theatre and education as in the discussion of plays but also it's a lot as as you said Katie it, it's social interaction for a lot of kids and I found I I was a member of uh, I went to stage schools and um and and Amadram when I was younger and I find it so much easier to socialize and converse with people now and I often question whether that would have been the case had I not gotten involved in something like that. Yeah, I uh, I want to speak also not just to the acting side of theatre. I wish I'd had more knowledge to know that lighting design, sound design, I would have, but that's what I would have done in my life, I think. And I ended up great, thankfully, having a job where I could sort of do all that and get paid to be creative, which I'm now realizing how wonderful that was, but, mm. and hopefully pass on that education to my, to my students, but, and had a great time doing it. But students and schools need to be aware of how how we were talking about the monetization of it or skills in general, there is, there are so many layers to theater, not just our, as you say, confidence and all, all of those things. It's mm -hmm. world building and just mind expanding. And it's the best. That's why we're here. It's the best thing. <laughs> it's the best <laughs> thing ever. I think it's important to uh, continue to mentor younger people. So whenever I see mm -hmm. people who really have a passion for theater, you know, in, in any groups that I've taught at or worked with, I, I will keep on answering their emails and I will keep on reading what they send me. And, you know, and, and if I can find a path for them in a play, I always will, because I think it's really important if anybody has that desire to just feed it and stoke that fire a little bit and send them books and send them stuff and say, read this, try this. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's great, you know. It's like what Scott said, you know, what do we want to do with what we have, with this time we have on this planet? And, mm -hmm. It's not a, you know, in, in some ways, the competition we have as playwrights in particular, sending off to these, you know, these these contests and things. Sure, that's competition there. But at the same time, it's driving us like sport to get this, you know, our sport better. You know, the art you would hope would get better and better because of it. If we can, I just, yeah, one of, I was just thinking the last piece of advice I gave to one of my students, her father insisted she does business and mm -hmm. she was a total theater lover. And I just thought, producer come on <laughs> you know just go for it just 
there's so many avenues, you know, so many avenues. Um, and it's a wonderful world to be a part of anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, final thought? Um, just listening to what you guys were saying as well, it's it, it, it comes full circle, doesn't it? Because I think, um, you know, I've stood... Um, I've stood on stages with huge, huge audiences and been played. I've been to various different things. I've sung with different people. I've done all kinds of really exciting things. But the really, really big things, the things that really stick in my mind is when you see the light go on in a young face, when someone's been dragged along to something, didn't want to come, and you're... <laughs> you know you're 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 moving them from maybe being a a person at the back of the stage who has to walk forward and look a bit surprised and you you work with them for a bit of time and suddenly a light goes on and there's nothing like it and you see them get bitten by that bug and they come back and they come back and they learn and they grow and they blossom and there's nothing i don't think there's anything to compare with that you know, that's, 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 you know, that's tomorrow's theatre. That's, that's, that's us tomorrow. Okay. Uh, John, with the introduction of theatre streaming services and musicals and plays being converted into movies, theatre is accessible to the masses now more than ever. But do you think theatre in this way is the future? Can I just say no and we leave it there? <laughs> I mean, I'd prefer it if you expanded a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of the National Theatre live streaming. Uh, and, and I think for me, there's, there's there's a number of issues I have around it. I mean, I, I get it. I love, you know, there's a democratisation of theatre going out to small places where they wouldn't normally get to see it and they get to see it in their local cinema. Great, fantastic. And, you know, my, my kids have been to see it and they've loved it as well. For me, the, there's, a, there's a number of core problems I have. Uh, one is that having speaking to actors involved with it, they, they themselves are not overly keen sometimes because when you're acting on stage, of course, what you're doing is you're giving your energy to an audience. Mm. You know, I mean, it may be bouncing off another character, it may be doing 101 things, but you are focusing that energy on an audience. And when you've suddenly got a camera on stage and an audience, there's a kind of split energy thing going on. And I know quite a few actors who've talked to me personally and gone, I hated it. I hated it because I didn't know where my energy was supposed to go. I, I'm, I'm used to doing film and TV. That's where my energy goes, onto the camera. Mm. I'm used to doing theatre. Now, all of a sudden, I'm told to do both at the same time. And it's actually, it felt dispiriting. I didn't feel at the end that I really enjoyed it. So mm. that's a concern for me. I get it why theatres want to do it because it monetizes the theatre and gives you extra income for every show. But again, we shouldn't forget that it's not, it's not, you know, our type of theatre being put out there. It's it's Cumberbatch doing his piece. It's whoever, you know, it's the names doing it. Yeah. And again, I think one of the problems we're falling into is that age-old thing of if there's not a name involved in your show, it is really hard to sell it. Uh, and we've gone into this whole thing where star status is what is in the West End all the time. Mm. And for me, theatre is, is more than that. You know what I mean? It has to be more than just a roll call of, the people I see all the time on TV and on the radio. And after a while you go, oh, yeah, he's great. I love him. He's a fantastic actor. But I bet you there's somebody called Dave Smith down the road who is equally as good 
but he's never going to get a chance because you won't point the camera in his direction. Mm. So I would be proud if the National Theatre went, you know what, we're going to do a whole season of people you don't know. That mm. would be great because that would be brave. But It's not brave to go and put, I'm blaming Cumberbatch. I like him, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm blaming you if you're out there. Uh, but no, if it I'm helps, saying, I don't think he listens to this. <laughs> yeah, I, I know he listens to this, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, um, but it's, it's not his fault and it's not the National Theatre's fault because I get why they're doing it. But it just for me is kind of like it's a bit safe and it's a bit mm. easy. And, you know, I'm not sure really if it benefits theatre in the long run, because what it means is we don't have to go to theatre. And theatre for me is it's a very different thing. You know, going to a live theatre experience, there is risk. Mm. You know, it's there's a night when they don't do it right or the scenery doesn't work right, or the lights don't go on when they're supposed to. There's risk in theatre, and that risk is partly what the audience are buying into, I think. And that, for me, as a writer and a performer and a director, that's the third part of the show is the audience. You know what I mean? They are a third of the, the energy that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been a, um, a comedy promoter, you'll know how awful it is when your second act comes on and dies at death. Because... <laughs> The whole energy that was built up by the first act who's come on and gone, I leave you now, great. And the next next act, and the next one comes on and goes, Oh, nobody mm -hmm. gets this. And you're thinking, oh, how do we save this evening? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But that for me is is again part of the risk of theatre, is the joy of it, is that you don't quite know what you're getting. And you know, theatre on film, it's getting it's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not against it. I've I've you know, um, Brex Threat the Opera. I saw that on a film before I saw it on stage. And it was like, what is this? You know, what is this? Um, but there's a very different thing. And I think for me, I'm not a huge fan of mm. it, if I want to. I, I don't go and see it because I would rather see, I'd rather somebody I don't know impressing me. It's like when I live in Hastings, there's bands everywhere. Mm. Oh my God, there's so much music. Um, and I love being the fact that, that in a, we'll go to see bands in Hastings, what I loved about moving here was there was kids from 16 to adults who were 60 to 70 in the same audience and nobody cared. It was mm -hmm. just that you were passionate about that thing. Mm -hmm. And being passionate about something and sharing it with people of all different ages is just great. And I love the buzz of an audience coming out at the end of a show and that feeling and that will never be replaced by an audience coming out having watched a cinema experience. No. It's not the same. Well, it's so, not a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for me, going back to what you said about it being an experience, for me, the first uh, uh, stage show I ever saw, I saw um, Les Mis in the West End with my mum. And, and uh, Colin Wilkinson played Jean Valjean. And I just remember, and Michael Ball was Marius. And I just remember sitting there, even at the age of, I can't even, must be 13, 14 maybe, and I was just mesmerized. It was just phenomenal. When the stage moves and forms the barricade, I was just like, that to me was just, it, it, was, it did feel like magic. And then obviously many years later, I went to see I went to see the film and Con Wilkinson plays the bishop. And I was like, oh, I know him. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I, I do agree. You don't get the same, the same feeling walking out of a cinema as you do walking out of theatre, especially when it's part of your life from a very young age as it was for me. I think also it's like, because I went to the um, 
uh, Judas Caesar, the bridge. And um, I don't know some of you out will know the bridge. It's a new space that was developed actually just before COVID happened. And it was the most visceral. I mean, the whole thing, you were just being, it was in the round, you were in the middle, you were being pushed, you were being spat on, there was being blood thrown over you, you were being sold baseball hats at <laughs> a rally. I mean, it was just like, it was, I was, you know, I was literally, when the, when the war happened, you were, you were heaved out of the way by people firing guns around you. It was just like, I thought, that is theatre. Mm. That, I, I love that, you know. Mm. I've, um, had the chance national theater where I, where I've been living thankfully it was the only english theater really that i had so it was great so like you said um places out of the way able to to to, to tap into theater has been has been wonderful but absolutely i agree there's nothing the, it's physical and visceral and the sights the sounds and no amount of technology will capture that and that human element like you mentioned the risk mm -hmm. there's there's no there's nothing that can replace that and that's why it's such an exceptional um, art form. Mm. Well, I, I fully admit that I am not the typical theater consumer. Um, I am practically a feral fan of the National Theater at home. Um, for, you know, 10% of the ticket price of one Broadway show, I have a, I have a catalog of theater. Um, and the, the, I, I accept that it's not a full, authentic, live theatrical experience, but everything John described as, as experiencing in that production of Julius Caesar, I felt when I saw it, mm -hmm. right? So while I appreciate John's um, deferral or, <laughs> or, or perfect, you know, his preference, I agree live, th live theater is better. National National Theater Live at Home um, is kind of my baby. I love it, and I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> the thing is, it it has its own benefits. So I uh, I had I forget what it's called. I think it was like Broadway HD or something similar to that. And there are yeah. productions on that that have never been over here. So I'd never seen. Uh, I think I watched Memphis. Uh, the musical which was done over there but it's not it's not made it over here so to me that was some experience something entirely new um that I wouldn't have experienced maybe for you know five ten years that's if it ever came over because not obviously every production in the US makes it over to the the UK and also you consider if you consider are... yourself lucky for that by the way <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you are as as Scott so eloquently described a feral lover of theater um you are never going to be able to afford to go to you know four five six shows a month you just physically cannot do it even with how much of productions it gets expensive um so the idea of being able to just sit on the sofa and watch you know shows every night of the week if you wanted to it's it is a lovely feeling um and especially for shows that well i say shows I, ian mckellen did a, a one-man show about his life uh in theater and i again that was one i watched on on stream and it was brilliantly done and it was so funny and i know that there were it probably would have been amazing to be in that theater and see the man talk himself but i didn't discover it until three months after he'd done it so that was never going to happen because i have not mastered time travel um <laughs> But at the same time, yeah, it was still an, an experience for me. So I think it, it has its place, 
but I, I think you're, I, I agree with you, John. I don't think there's anything that can replace the, the live feeling. Yeah, and, and Ian McKellen talking, it's just something I'd watch anyway. It's true. The man knows how to entertain. Yeah, he's just a <laughs> natural storyteller. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's like, like you, you said, Nora, it spans across all, uh, quite a few mediums. It's the same with sports. It's the same with going to see, as you said, John, going to see bands. It's the same with going to see comedians. It is never the same unless you are seeing it live. There is a reason the phrase you had to be there exists, and I'm pretty sure it applies to this. <laughs> Only nowadays, audiences are full of people holding up their cameras. Oh, don't. It's just, I, I don't I don't get that. I was at Glassbury one year, and the whole everyone around me had their camera up, and I was thinking, but we're here. We're here now. You see that band behind your camera phone? <laughs> No lighters, no smokers. But it's it's become it's become quite a, a thing now as well in uh, in shows. It was happened a couple I went to see in London where they get to the finale at the end and they're doing their kind of final piece, and the actors will say to the audience, "We now invite you to take photographs and videos and post online with hashtag etc." Which I get from a marketing perspective, but it is so weird compared to. The way I saw theatre when I was younger, when you never dream of doing stuff like that. Okay, um, John. Do you want me to sum up then? Final thought, final thought, but not just no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think my final thought is Scott's right, of course. Um, There is some amazing theatre out there, which we will never get a chance to see because you're right, it's too expensive. And the opportunity to see those great performances is you know, it is really important and and it is a great way to see it if, you, if we can't go and see it otherwise. But will it replace theatre for me? No. No. Okay. If you were in possession of a significant sum of money to invest in the arts, how would you choose to invest it and why? And this time we'll start with Katie. Coming back to a point I made earlier, I think for me, it would be in finding a way to better accredit and train and create um, a form of training or a form of qualification that takes um, theatre into takes theatre to youth mm. uh, in such a way that everybody gets a bite of it, um, but that makes it, if it's possible to do, uh, that makes it not. Um, a box ticking exercise and that makes it something really meaningful that would definitely that would definitely be a good uh thing and not just and also not just as as um Nora was saying it's not just acting this is writing this is directing this is all of the technicalities all of the all of the disciplines because it is huge yeah okay John well, I, I recently went to the Shakespeare North uh, Playhouse, which has been built in Prescott, Liverpool. Mm. Uh, really, really poor ward. Uh, not a place you'd expect to find Shakespeare at all. Uh, they built a brand new building, and inside that is a replica of the Globe Theatre, all in oak, but inside. Uh, they've got a studio, gallery, all those sort of spaces you expect. Mm. Really ordinary working-class people going to see theatre and Shakespeare. And um, I, I personally would build a theatre. I would build a theatre with a fantastic theatre space, 
but at least two studio spaces so we could do work with the local kids and local people and give working class people a voice because one of the big problems in in England at the moment and nowhere else is that of course we're stopping working class people from going into theatre by putting so many barriers in their way by not doing it in schools by by not not even the government don't even want it to be part of a degree anymore. I don't think that's sick and tired of theatre banging on about things. And mm. um, and even even if you want to apply for money from the Arts Council, the form's impenetrable if you haven't been through a degree like I have. It's not for working class people. So I would build a theatre and I would be able to put on working class theatre for working class voices. Yeah, you're on the same tangent as me because I always said if I won that kind of money, I'd open a theatre but I'd call it the theatre darling so that whenever time you went or were involved you couldn't help but sound like an like an actor where are you going to the theatre darling hmm? <laughs> uh, Nora um I, I suppose putting it in one's own bank account doesn't count so that you could carry on no. self-investment <laughs> does not count <laughs> Sort of that one. Okay, so um, we were speaking of the National Theatre. I, I There is no National Theatre in the United States. There is no, you know, there's no, re I mean, there's sort of the National Endowment for the Arts and different things, but they're trying to get some sort of national system going where there is more attention to theatre. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, and finally, Scott. Um, what I would do would be set up a uh, micro-grant program for anything between say like fifty to two thousand dollars for artists who are starting out mm. um, to give them an opportunity to get some theater happening, whatever that would mean to them. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our interesting discussion. <laughs> um, Guys, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you all. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Nice to meet you all. Yeah, thank really great. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another episode of The Panel Presents. Thank you for joining me for the fabulous chat with Nora, Scott, Katie and John. And I hope you can join me on October 7th for another new episode with four new panellists. If you enjoy this series or any of the other episodes produced as part of Theatrical Shenanigans, then make sure you drop a like, follow or rating on our podcast page or Facebook page. You also have the option of showing your support in the form of a pre-show cocktail on our Buy Me A Coffee page, which can be found through our main podcast page on Podbean. In other news, episode 3 of the second season of Theatrical Shenanigans goes live at 10am UK time tomorrow with a humorously spooky tale and my chat with Greg Hatfield, who is a familiar name to Theatrical Shenanigans. I hope you can join us tomorrow for the new episode, but in the meantime though, I'm Rachel Feeney-Williams, this has been Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans, part of an RFW script production. Found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.